This podcast was recorded on February 17th, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double Line Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, welcome to the Sherman Show. Uh, I'm here with my co-host uh, Sam Allow from uh, the Macross Allocation Team, Hello. and today we also have our inaugural guest, uh, Professor Robert Schiller, um, and we're going to talk to him about um, uh, economics. We're going to talk about politics, and uh, we'll see where the conversation goes. Uh, so, Professor Schiller, thanks for joining us today. And, uh, and what I'd like to do is uh, I want to kind of pick your brain, and you know, you, you've you've been out there as a well-regarded economist, a Nobel laureate. Um, what got you into the field of economics? Give me some of the backstory. What, what, what really elicited the passion to become a professor and study in the field of, of economics? Well, when I was a teenager, I thought of every possible occupation. And I thought it was horrible that I had to narrow down and specialize in one thing. <laughs> I got really uh, upset. It was a cry. I don't know if other young people have the same sense of panic. I could be anything, but now my life is over, except in one dimension. <laughs> at, at age 17, it seems tragic. <laughs> that's, that's my I have to say also rest. that in my case, I'm not so squarely in economics. I'm a professor of economics, sure. but I also have newspaper columns that I write on a regular basis. Right. And I started two companies. I was an uh, uh, entrepreneur. Right. I guess I never did want to be pigeonholed. Right, right. Uh, yeah, sorry that we have to put labels on everything, right? I mean, it's... Uh, I think maybe it's a mistake to, to take those too seriously. Right, right. And generally, the success in life is uh, connected to being able to cross borders. And, uh, and we shouldn't have be too zealous about licensing. I had to take <laughs> Series 7 and Series 24... Yes. Here I was already a professor of economics. Why did I have to take these exams? <laughs> it was scary. <laughs> and, and the pressure, right? You you have a doctorate um, in a field, and all of a sudden you're taking this licensing exam that you know everybody that kind of enters the broker dealer field does. But it's not something you'd know from your PhD. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so um, so uh, so from that perspective, too, um, we don't want to pigeonhole you or label you. Um, but what, what do you what do you do kind of in your spare time? What what is your current interest out there um, as outside you, of economics? Well, it can be your your field of economics or what, what what currently interests you right now. Well, one thing I don't do is watch television. Okay, and I think that's there's obviously very good programming, but I think it somehow draws you in and makes you passive. It turns okay. you into a vegetable. Yeah. So I don't do except when I'm with a group, and then I'll watch whatever they're watching. I don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so your pa- your current interest is not watching television. No, I've discovered uh, you can get by in life without ever watching. You know, 
People still like me, I think, even though I can't comment on anything on TV. <laughs> well, it's a good thing we're doing a podcast here and not trying to do a live broadcast because you'd never be able to see it. Um, so um, when you think about um, kind of uh, not watching television and pursuing interests, you know, what, what's, the, what's the topic du jour? What, what is the thing that most interests you about the world today? Uh, well, going back to my childhood, I was interested in astronomy. Okay. And what I sometimes do first thing in the morning is I just go out and look at the stars, mm-hmm. and I I don't I try to reorient myself. Uh, this Earth is just a tiny little thing. Little spec- it's it's right. like a spiritual thing. I get other people say prayers in the morning. <laughs> I go out and look at the stars. Yeah. Well, um, you know, especially not living in a large city, you know, well, not, I can not see them metropolis. Better, you yeah. can actually see but them, but you can even see them from New York. It's, yeah. it's still worth doing. It's still worth doing. Okay, great. Yeah, no, uh, I definitely uh, love when we go to remote places and you can just see the beauty in it, too. It, it really is humbling, right, to think about we are just these specks in the entire universe. It's scary, it actually, is. to think about it. Yeah. You know, Professor Schiller, I was um, actually quite surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, to see that you seem to have embraced social media as well and that you're fairly active on, on Twitter. And uh, that caught me as you know off guard a little bit, but you know, perhaps you can talk a little bit about that because I, I myself don't use Twitter I, I, oh, I don't okay. I don't think anyone ever want to read what I'm what I'm thinking about there but you on the other hand is very different but yeah. it's like how often do you how do you separate your publications that you have I know you have a piece coming out shortly as you you know periodically do but you know what you write in those publications and what you choose to put out on Twitter well, I'm not actually the super active. I've only done 150 or so tweets, I think. You're 150 ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I was skeptical. I'm a voyeur. I a lot of news yeah. from there. I guess when I first heard of Twitter, it sounded silly. I, this Talking about tweets, it, yeah. it just sounded too silly for me. But then I thought that there's actually a, um, a, a social network that, uh, uh, that is maybe useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find people who share your interests. And uh, it's like they're sitting around the table with you. You know, you read something in the newspaper, that, that, uh, and you, you might say to someone sitting next to you, hey, this is really interesting, and it's, uh, or this is wrong, or whatever. And it's exactly that, uh, that. And then you can pick whoever you want as sitting around the table with you. Right. And uh, uh, I, I think it does. It's actually useful. It's, it's uh, an enhancement of the human brain. Yeah. And it's really changing the way that we communicate as a world, as, as a, a world as well. I mean, some would say that uh, perhaps the newly elected president partially won his presidency through his communication right. via Twitter as well. And, you know, perhaps, you know, there's something that I've been talking about with Twitter risk, which is uh, it seems to be more and more realistic every day as, you know, the, the president, I thought, you know, he continues to, to tweet out his whatever seems to be a stream of consciousness right. at, at times. Well, there is a downside to Twitter, and that is that it does allow people who don't check their facts and do research uh, to send out fake news. Right. Uh, and that may be changing our politics yeah. all over the world. Right. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's definitely something that affects the psychosis, too, because if you're only getting your news from... Uh, and again, I- ideologies and things simply from a source that can't isn't verified or trusted. Um, it could be a slippery slope for education globally. Right. Now, I was just going to say on that score, 
Mm -hmm. uh, there was an important step forward around 1920 when they made long-distance calls cheap. And then by the 20s, the average American made 200 phone calls a year. That's almost one every day. So people were really on the phone. And that led to some uh, frauds. And there were people who were getting on the phone and calling up and selling fake securities. Uh, and then people had to learn. That was fake news of a sort. Right. That was, uh, and so the new technology is, uh, is, again, putting us into a place where maybe we're not skeptical enough of what we read. Yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting, too, because um, all we're doing is just changing the way we are communicating. But there's still, you know, the bad hombres out there in the world. Um, as, as we think about it, people are trying to scam people. And, right, there's, there's always going to be fraud and delusion. But, um, you know, so let's talk about research then. You know, let's talk about actual news and analysis, not just yeah. discussion. And. What what's a what, what kind of uh, was your first interest uh, as you became declared as an economist? Uh, what what was your first uh, kind of oh, research topic? My uh, doctoral dissertation was on the term structure of interest rates, fixed income. Fixed income, right? <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> I didn't keep up with that for too long. Right. But. Well, given how we started off the dialogue, I mean, it's uh, you know you seem to be a curious individual. So and. Uh, Applying rational expectations model. This sounds uncharacteristic of me now. <laughs> right. But the idea is, in uh, if you looked at short-term interest rates and made an optimal forecast using stochastic uh, models, yep. Yep. Uh, and then you priced long bonds in terms of a fixed risk premium right. and uh, for optimal forecast, how well would that fit the uh, the 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 path of yep. long-term interest rates? And I reached a rather optimistic solution, which I decided later was too optimistic. <laughs> That's what I did. Right. Okay, good. But then it led me to think, I don't believe in rational expectations. Because, you know, as a graduate student, you don't have time to indulge in too many doubts. You have to finish the dissertation. Right. And you end up, uh, this is the curse of graduate student life, that you end up doing something. By the time you've finished it, you absolutely don't believe in what you just did. <laughs> Well, uh, how do you give advice to your graduate students? Uh, I assume you, you, you are an advisor to certain yeah. graduate students. So how do you help them tackle that challenge? Well, it's, it's difficult. I, I do give them idealistic advice, which is do what you believe in. Mm -hmm. But it's true that they were on a short... Well, well, I guess I tell them my experience as placement officer. Years ago, I was supposed to help new PhDs find a job. And I told them that I was surprised to learn that lots of other people in the profession, economics, other professors, had the same doubts that I do. And it's, it's like you don't know that. Yeah. But when I'm discussing a young person's work, I was surprised at how often some guy would say, oh, that again, I've, <laughs> I don't want to hear that. <laughs> and they seemed to like the people who did something fresh and different. Right. Uh, Although it, it, it has to be good enough, you know, you, you can't, right. you can't throw nonsense. Yeah. If, if, uh, it's not just a PhD machine. I think know, more right? people than you'd think are skeptical of the conventional wisdom, secretly inside. Yeah, I, I have to say that um, I started off in a doctorate program in applied mathematics, and uh, the daunting task of the dissertation is what what really turned me off because I thought. If there's so many fields out there, how? Why did I choose mathematics to try to create something new? 
I mean, I'm trying to build upon hundreds of years of all this advanced thought. And you talk about daunting, and that's why uh, I luckily I found an application of mathematics and finance. But so. there's always new things to There is new things to discover, but it's the daunting that's nature. That's the amazing thing, too. You get the impression in school yeah. that it's all done. Right. But in fact, it's just infinitely more it can be done. That's right. And that's in the mathematics or anything. Right, and everything, you know, and... Um, it is funny too. We joke around because um, I we have a couple of uh, employees here who are uh, strong analysts and portfolio managers who are theoretical physics dropouts. I like to call them. You know, they're PhD dropouts, and they're saying too in the realm of theoretical physics, they're really hitting the limits too. Like at least at our current stage of thought too. Well, one thing though is there are more jobs in finance. <laughs> I tell my students that I think I have. Uh, I teach financial markets. Okay. I think I have one of the most career useful courses in all of our university. Yeah, uh, it's really uh, it has its ups and downs. You know, after the financial crisis, not as good, but it's really a, a place where there are good jobs. Right. Well, I think you know that's one thing that we don't do at, at a younger age is give a lot of financial literacy. Right. Giving advice and teaching people how to really think about their financial future as well. Um, but. Speaking of that, let, let's move on to thinking about financial markets. You know, so yeah. you teach a course in it. I have an online course. It's free. It's free. On Coursera. Yeah. yeah. And, and so maybe you could tell our audience about how to access that. I just search Schiller Coursera. Okay. Coursera. How is that spelled? That's a company that does... Course. Online. It's two words. Course. No, one word. Okay. C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A. Coursera. Okay. One word. Blending the two together. They coined a new word. Okay. Well, they developed something new. Is that worthy of a PhD? that's a joke so um anyway uh as we think about the markets too um you know obviously you've been famous for both uh creating uh indices within the uh housing market uh with the um uh professor uh, carl case um and then also working on a way of using your cape ratio uh to apply that to the financial markets um what do you think is interesting about creating these new series of indices and things like that for people to follow? Well, I think that economists are often most productive when they invent an index. Okay. Um, they have big transformation. If they're, if they're making an index that has a objective of being used in contracts or trading, okay. then it becomes a new uh, tool that, that creative minds can devise applications for. But I think a lot of uh, economists don't think in terms... Of, uh, there aren't that many indices out there. Uh, I was surprised that when Case and I were working on home price indices, how small the academic literature was on how to construct them. Right. And then there were people who wrote papers about how to construct home price indices, but they never followed it up. I mean, they didn't do it. And so it just sat there in some journal. And yeah. So uh, the nice thing about being a professor is you can also be an entrepreneur. And I, yeah. I had a student, Alan Weiss, who wanted me to set up a company, and we created the Case Schiller Home Price. Home price. And, and I, I, I remember when they first got launched to, to trade on the exchange, uh, on the comments. Right, that's what we wanted. Right. right from the beginning. Right. We were the only home price index producer that ever said that. that, right. that that was absolutely our our prime focus, was, right? And that that involved uh, issues about, uh, for example, uh, 
the ability of someone to monkey with the indexes by making trades on a limited number of houses, about uh, revisions in the index, because mm-hmm. uh, the information comes in later, right. and what do you do about that? Right. Yeah. So we thought a lot about those issues. Right. Oh, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think, I mean, part of those, the, the use of with those indices that you had, too, in, in conjunction with a book, and one book in particular that you, you published back in 2000, Irrational Exuberance, mm-hmm. um, which the timing of such proved to be very prescient with regard to the, the, the crash in the stock market following um, shortly thereafter. You had a second edition to the book in 2005, which again seemed to be very prescient. Right, right. You know, this time in the housing market. Now I saw that you had a third edition. Yeah, 2015. <laughs> Should we be scared? Well, I mean, what, what's the yeah. warning? What, what's there? the up, what's, yeah? What's, what's the update? So the, uh, <laughs> the first edition was just about the stock market. Mm-hmm. The second edition added the housing market. Correct. Third edition, I added. The bond market. Uh-oh. Oh, right. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Because, let's, let's, let's mute the microphone. <laughs> so so what, what are you worried about the bond market? Let's the talk prices about it. were very high. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Right around uh, uh, bond, long-term bond yields hit record lows. Yes. Right around the time the book came out. Yeah. Also, short-term interest rates. January 2015 is actually right. the low in the long bond, right? Yeah. And uh, the uh, short rate was below 1%. Uh, longer than ever before. Right. The only other time when it was low was the Great Depression, <laughs> but it wasn't as long. Uh, <laughs> wow. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so, but I didn't actually uh, come up with a, a forecast for the bond market because uh, it seems uh, I, I didn't want to press my luck. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, when we think about the bond market, um, especially as investors in it. Um, you know, the, the, we have record issuance across the board globally, you know, with the debt. And so, you know, I, I've heard over the last few years, people ask about the bond bubble. Oh, the Treasury, you know, treasuries are in a bubble. Um, the Fed has manipulated things so far. Um, but what's kind of been the silent um, kind of ticking time bomb, and again, this is not trying to say it's going to implode tomorrow, is the corporate debt market and the you know, the application of quantitative easing, forcing people out the risk spectrum, allowed a lot of corporations globally to really issue at very low levels. And so, do you think that that could portend something uh, uh, tragic in the future? I mean, we haven't really seen a bond market crash in a long period of time. People think of 1994, um, you know, in the in the quick hike in rates uh, there, but we haven't really seen a huge correction in a bond market. In, in over two decades, um, is that the next market? Perhaps that, that perhaps. Could have, yeah. I, per, I, I, thought, I used perhaps there. Uh, but what do you what do you think of, uh, about the the kind of structural issues we have from um, from the debt burden? Well, uh, the, first of all, there was the financial crisis, which increased the national debt, yes. and that uh, put some pressure on people's faith. But even so, the interest rates went down. It got very, uh, long-term rates got very low. Uh, the other thing is that uh, we now have in the United States a president who has had businesses that declared bankruptcy in the yeah. past. Yeah. And uh, he Is that real news or fake news? <laughs> <laughs> but he himself never did. Correct. Uh, and uh, you'd think that that might, you know, I, this is about what 
human behavior. Sure. But you think that it might make the market more vulnerable. Uh, yeah. Well, some forecasts say that our national deficit was, while nearing twenty trillion uh, currently, um, could look like thirty trillion by the time of the end of the presidency if he gets kind of some of the debts in very short order. Very short order. Yeah. So there, I think there is a reason to be nervous. And I do recall at some point on the campaign trail, he just said, "Well, we can just renegotiate it." Yes, yeah, right. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of bankruptcy, that, right? That's a nice word. Renegotiate, renegotiate <laughs> aka, you know, we're just going to charge you a twenty percent tax to redeem those bonds, right? So they're giving you par. We're going to give you eighty yeah. cents now, right? That's a renegotiation. It's the art of the deal, right? Now people have forgotten that the U.S. defaulted before. Mm-hmm. If you count the gold clause abrogation, yep. yes. in the thirties, yep. Uh, and they had a, a narrative that justified that. Yeah. A narrative, right? It's always about a narrative. What do you think today's narrative will be, or the the one that may be coming? Well, the, Trump is a narrative. He's a genius at narratives, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he, he's uh, it, it's so many faceted. Though I, I don't know what 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 is coming. Uh, well, the current one is that he's making America great again, right? I mean, he's, yeah. as you said, he's great at it. He's got the red hats out there. People are buying them. People are wearing them. Depending on where you are in the country, I mean, maybe not here in you know in California, certainly not in Los Angeles or San Francisco. But if you go to different parts of the country, you you, know, you start to see the red hats come out. You see groups of people wearing the the red, you know, make America yeah. great hats again. America so. first. Right. There have been yeah. people in foreign countries saying. Who's second? <laughs> Maybe yeah. we're second. Yeah. That well, would be great. Well, the thing second. is, hey, yo, I mean, he's going to tell you, uh, President Trump will definitely tell you that there's no other place to be. You know, you're, you're going to have to vie for second, right? That's, um, a, that's the American dream narrative or something right, but, like that. But that's really what it is. I mean, it, it's nationalistic behavior. and There's you know, a French narrative. There's the French dream. Yeah. In fact, uh, who wrote that? La Rêve Francaise. Okay. Who mm-hmm. wrote that? Uh I'm trying to remember a French president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that too, um, we're talking about narratives. Um, well, let's talk about the psychology of the narrative. How do you think it's it's being impacted in financial markets? This narrative that President Trump is is putting out in the public. Well, I uh, am trying to understand that, and I make historical comparisons. Okay. Uh, we've never had a Donald Trump before. Uh, who have we had that's somewhat similar? Well, I think of two former presidents, um, Calvin Coolidge and Ronald Reagan. Uh, now, they were in, both of them, uh, they strike me as, in personality, totally different. Calvin Coolidge, you, you should get on YouTube and watch one of his speeches. Okay. Boy, was he a formal, bland speaker. Awful. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but he had the same free market orientation, anti-immigrant orientation, cut the taxes on the rich orientation. He put a treasury secretary, Andrew Mellon, the founder of Mellon Bank, as his treasury secretary. And the whole economy boomed. And it turns out that even though Calvin Coolidge was a dud as a public speaker, he became a myth and a hero because people thought, they called it Coolidge prosperity. And what he did, uh, he was so unglamorous that he didn't care to impress you on what he did. He became known as the do-nothing president. But but he just said, I don't think there's anything for me to do. Let's let free enterprise. (laughs) And if I do anything, make some new regulations, it'll just mess things up. So this became a a theme for a while, until 
he was president until 1929, and then we had the 1929 stock market crash, unfortunately. And then views just changed so totally. The narrative completely changed. Actually, the narrative was changing before the crash. Really? This is another thing. If you go back and look at uh, what people were saying in newspapers, by 1928, they were talking about stock market crash, and they were talking about speculation. It was you know, a lot of the newspapers. Mm-hmm. So there was something changed. There was doubts were appearing. Uh, sociology is a complicated field, and why people change their views en masse is not something that anybody fully understands. But right now, the the view is positive about Trump's program, mm-hmm. and I could imagine it can, continuing for years. Yep. Well, that's interesting, too, because when we talk about valuation and using historical comparisons, uh, you know, you can pick your favorite measure. I'll let you choose which one you like. Um, but most valuation signals show that we are at above average valuation. Yeah. And we can argue about how extreme it is. Um, and again, that's what a lot of financial punditry would try to do. But again, the, this is the disconnect between valuation and kind of the animal spirits of markets, right? Yeah, ratios are only just a uh, clue. Uh, ultimately, it's about what uh, people are thinking and how realistic it is. Perception is better than reality when it comes to markets, correct? Uh, I think so, but I've been fighting a battle over the years. Mm-hmm. The, the so-called efficient markets hypothesis mm-hmm. has garnered a lot of support. Uh, and uh, so, for example, um, uh, people, the Federal Reserve Chair uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, interfere with markets because they, they would take the attitude that research has shown that markets are wiser than any individual. Uh, that sounds on the face of it absurd. On the other hand, there's a lot of research showing that it's partly true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I always liked um, the uh, what uh, Professor Lowe, uh, a- Andrew Lowe from uh, MIT, put out, the adaptive markets yeah, hypothesis. Yeah, he has. Do you see his new book? I have not. No. Well, maybe you haven't. I just got... I, you I got, got a copy. I got a copy. It'll be out soon. Yeah. It's actually very good. Yeah. Well, called, next, next time you see him, to let him know that Sam and I would like an early look next time. Okay. But, no, please, please. I think it's called Adaptive Markets in okay. the title, or it's in the title. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really, and, and uh, Andrew Lowe is a, a student of neuroscience, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting field that's going to change the way we think about ourselves. Uh, there, there's more and more information about what goes on yeah. in the brain, including the tendency for, he has a chapter in the book on, um, on uh, narratives. Oh, really? Uh, so narratives are supported by brain structures. Uh, I like to put it this way. Uh, what do you dream about at night? <laughs> do you dream about equations? Or do you dream about uh, geometric figures <laughs> flashing before your <laughs> right. It's always a narrative. Yeah, it involves true. people yeah. uh, and emotions. Yeah, I don't... I so think I think that, yeah. that's because your brain is designed to do... Uh, it's the, uh, the, uh, some people have said we should change the name of our species from Homo sapiens to Homo narrator. That was uh, Stephen Jay Gould who said that. Okay. Because we, we are always telling stories. Well, look what we're doing right now. We're telling stories. Right. And right so the stories too. can somehow trump the... That's why you need ratios. It, it, they're, they're completely uh, non I mean, no judgment goes into their construction. Yeah. yeah, they're agnostic to the narrative, right? They don't know the narrative, yeah. No, not necessarily they always can predict, but right. 
they can give you a, a sense of uh, where did this narrative come from? It's like a fake news. Narratives are. Sure. It's not that it, they can be planted by somebody who's trying to start a narrative. Mm -hmm. Like Occupy Wall Street, for example. That was a narrative. Mm -hmm. And that was created by some creative people sitting around a table like this <laughs> in Vancouver in their Adbusters. Uh, 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 it's, a, it's a group that likes to uh, generate controversy. And they said, let's start uh, uh, Occupy... Uh, what is, the, what is the business street on Vancouver called? I don't know. Oh, in Vancouver. I don't know. It doesn't it's, matter. It's King. I Someone quickly Toronto, said, right? yeah, anyway. look, we're Canadian, but we don't do this in Vancouver. We do this in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and we call it Occupy Wall, Wall Street. Because right? right. it yeah. clinks into another narrative. Well, it, it is amazing. We still call it Wall Street. And um, really, there's not much that goes on on Wall Street anymore. Right. Uh, there is a stock exchange, but it's really just a, kind of a home oh, for and CNBC they, and, and a few. Yeah, and they still put on a show. It. It's a show, right? CNBC is there, and there's a trading floor. Right. Yeah, it's more pomp and circumstance. It's, it's, it's fake. It's, it's it, fake news. Oh, so see, no, <laughs> we, we don't go. want to get in trouble with CNBC here. Or, uh, yeah. Okay, sorry okay. I said that. No, no, like you're, you're tired to have your opinion. It's, it's, it's all in good fun. There, so. There's another, um, I don't know if, if it's fair to call it an index that uh, I've seen your name associated with. It. I believe you conduct some surveys you know, mm. of individuals and potentially right. institutions as well on the stock market as well. Is it? It's the stock market confidence. Yeah, I have stock market confidence indices. Now it's being run by the Yale School of Management. Okay. And I've continued to do these indices now since 1989. One, one thing that I've discovered about surveyed—they don't ask the same question repeated as often as they should. Now the, the famous Conference Board Confidence Index and the Michigan Consumer Sentiment mm -hmm. Index ask the same question year after year. But most of the time, they're, they're one-off things, so you can't compare. So I wanted to ask more questions about financial outlook and ask them consistently through time so I don't change the questionnaire. And we learn things from that. For example, I asked, what do you think is the probability of a 1929 stock market crash? And you know what? In the next six months, mm -hmm. people exaggerate. Typically, it's like 15 20% is the probability that people give. Wow. It, it can't be that high right. in the next six months. Right. Maybe they don't understand probabilities. Yeah, well, I, maybe they well. don't, yeah. yeah. But on, the, on, on top of that, surprisingly, just before the 2007 peak in the market and the financial crisis, their fear of a crash was abnormally low. <laughs> exactly the well, opposite. Well, euphoria, euphoria is taking over. but that, I, think I think that's right. It's, 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 euphoria is maybe too strong a word, but you're onto something. It's a but maybe it's mood. dopamine in our character, right? You know, dopamine, the, yeah, yeah. Right? I don't know if I'm even saying it correct. But yeah, I, that's I, right. There's I, a do dopamine system, system in the brain. Yeah, right. It's, it's what generates the kind of pleasure that we feel, right? Um, it's it's right. some sort of stimulative, right? Yeah, and neuroscientists have shown that it's very responsive to news. Right. When you get good news, your dopamine system charges, it recharges, sends signals over the whole brain. That's why we smile and laugh, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think you can take the, the idea you're talking about from the confidence thing. It's the same thing when you ask people, what do you think the stock market return will be in the next year? And you see these in, when you have high return periods... You know, what history shows is that they usually followed by lower or at least below average type of periods. But you notice with the sentiment and you talk to folks, well, if the stock market did 20% next year, that becomes it's 20% every year, right. right? So there is right. something about the, the anchoring bias, I think, right. that, that we have in, um, in the financial markets. Yeah, uh, so 
uh, I ask a question. Do you agree with the following statement? The stock, stocks are the best investment for long-term holders who can buy and hold through the ups and downs in the market. <laughs> and that's a question. It doesn't say now. It says just in general. Right. But the uh, answer, the positive answers to that question tend to occur after bull markets. Right. It, it's... Uh, there, there was a book out there, I think, called Stocks for the Long Run. Oh, yes. Jeremy <laughs> Siegel. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to touch on uh, Professor Siegel. Some yeah. positive feedback loop. Yeah. Yeah, that has I'm going to be debating him uh, at a conference soon. So, oh, yeah. great. Uh, let us know about that. Uh, we'd, yeah. love, we'd love to see that, too. Uh, I've debated him in the past. No, it's I, an I, ongoing I, thing, but we're still friends. You're friends, yeah. right? <laughs> No, you know, that, and that's great. I mean, that, that's the important part is that we should be able to have intellectual debate and be able to discuss ideas and have conflicting views and, and still be able to get along. We right? need more of that today, yeah. nowadays, right? Right. So um, I do recall the Q group um, where you guys were poised against each other, you, right. and, you and Professor Siegel. Oh, that was, are, yeah. that was the morning that I got the Nobel Prize. The, oh, it was, <laughs> yeah. And I was about to head off to Phoenix for the... Uh, and I, I asked my wife... Do I still go after I've just won the Nobel Prize? <laughs> and then it was decided the doorbell rang and it was a photographer. Oh. And that's when I realized I don't I don't go but I did it electronically. Okay, okay. And yeah. uh so yeah, um I mean, it, it seems like a, it, what I always found interesting about the debate between you and Professor Siegel is that uh you know, we're arguing about earnings adjustments and things, but all you're doing is resetting some of these metrics. And if you, if you take these adjustments and then compare them to the overall average, which is what we're doing with valuation right. metrics, you still get a similar result. It well, doesn't say that yeah. the market is grossly cheap if you make all these adjustments. So he wrote this paper in 2013. Mm -hmm. Three more years have gone by. The market is a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he made the point that if you do his corrected CAPE ratio... Right. The market doesn't look that high. That high, but right. you can use his corrected ratio, and now it's high. <laughs> it's pretty high, yeah. And I think you know you, you can. That's why I say you can pull out any favorite measure today um, when you think about a valuation metric, and, yeah. and it's elevated. There's no doubt. Um, so you know, kind of rounding out, we've we've talked about kind of markets. Let's talk a little bit more about the psychological side. Well, what what's the most fascinating topic in behavioral finance today, from your perspective? Uh I, I don't know what to single out. Uh, I guess uh, I've been thinking lately about the affect heuristic, okay. which is a, a term that was coined a few years ago by the psychologist Paul Slovic. And the affect and there's other papers since then. Have, affect heuristic says that your mood affects your judgment. Uh, for example, it was shown by Armin Falk and other researchers that uh, countries whose uh, team uh, wins, does well in the World Cup, mm -hmm. uh, becomes optimistic about everything <laughs> right <laughs> after that. The stock market, the economy. Yeah. Uh, but that makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that uh, in trying to predict what's going on, we have to understand the affect, affect heuristic. And um, so in the years leading up to the financial crisis in 2007, uh, there was a lot of uh, exciting talk that uh, holiday atmosphere that yeah. was uh, changing the affect, and that's part of the reason why people were less worried about a correction. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. Quite interesting. 
So, so thanks. Um, so we want to do is thank Dr. Schiller. Thank you for stopping by today and, and have this conversation. Um, Sam has a little uh, tidbit we like to do at the end each yeah. time of our show. And uh, maybe yeah. you can explain the rules to Professor Schiller and, and uh, uh, what you're going to do. Yeah, yeah. So we spent a lot of time today talking about human psychology. And I think this would be an interesting little uh, segue into the segment of the show that we call Sherman Says. In it, you know, we ask our participants um, – a one, or actually, we don't even ask. We what we do is I, I'll give a one word. Um, I'll say one word, yeah. or I'll, I'll utter a phrase, and then you know, word, it's like word association. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So the first that. thing that comes off, and again, this won't be held to get you <laughs> in a psychology test, uh, yeah. but but Sam comes up with some clever phrases and words, and what we want to do here is he'll we'll, we'll alternate back and forth right. between words and. Um, uh, I don't know who you want to start with today first, but we'll the first with, word that comes uh, Professor Schuller, yeah. yeah. And the first word or, you know, something that comes to your mind after I uh, utter my word. So the first one for you, Professor Schuller, is economics. Mathematics. All right. <laughs> Jeff Sherman, ba- fake news. Twitter. <laughs> Professor Schuller, Twitter. <laughs> I haven't seen the list. Uh, Just see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I can only answer in one word, right? No, yeah. one or two. You can get two if you need to. Uh, I, I just say uh, interesting connections, new fact, uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's right. good. Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> bon Jovi? A band. <laughs> that one's rough. Bitcoin. Oh, well, I, I think of uh, blockchain, Block, crypto and I think of cryptocurrency, a tax evasion, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, also, what's his name, uh, Nak- Nakas? Oh, the, Nakas- uh, the, the guy who the guy purportedly who, invented it. Who purportedly invented it, and how can it be that something like that is invented, and nobody even knows whether he exists or ever existed? Yeah. And, and the uh, I love uh, so this is this is obviously moving off the one word thing, but <laughs> I think it's amazing that people want to talk about it as a viable currency and it has like a hundred percent annualized volatility. That doesn't look like a currency to me. Yeah. But that said, um, I, I understand the interest and intrigue by it. But, yeah. yeah, Satoshi Naka. I can't. Satoshi. I know. I know where you're going. I, I just don't know. I don't want to talk about my head. He doesn't. He won't mind because he doesn't even exist. <laughs> right. he won't care. He's a narrative. Well, maybe he holds us into. The, that's yeah. why that's Bitcoin was so important because it has this mystery. That's one of the prime narratives. They keep newspaper articles keep coming up saying they found him, and then they haven't really found him. The next word on the list for Jeff Sherman is monsoon. Uh, Monsoon. <laughs> wow. Um, rain. Professor Schiller, efficient markets. Oh, uh, Eugene Fama. All right. uh, Graham and Dodd. And the final one. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. <laughs> Although he wasn't so focused on this. Right. Uh, he was kind of, again, he was an intellectual that was unpredictable. Uh, and he, that's what made him interesting. Yeah. So he, he advocated the negative income tax. You wouldn't have thought a free market guy would have. And final one, tariffs. Trump. 
And that's it. That's the end of the list. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. What does us? that reveal about our psychology? <laughs> we could take that offline. <laughs> we can discuss this. And too. the Rochard charts are next. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Professor Schiller. We really appreciate you swinging by. And uh, keep up the great work that you're doing in pursuing all of your adventures and dreams, and keep looking at the stars. <laughs> Take care. The audio presentation represents Doubleline's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of Doubleline. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, Double N Capital.